The second scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Listen now for a word from God. If if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven, Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm going to give you guys permission this morning. Um, It's okay if you think that these two scripture texts are a little bit boring. The first one, the Exodus text, kind of reads like a recipe. I know that there are some people who read recipes for fun, but I am not one of them. It's kind of like describing how you roast lamb over the fire, season it with some bitter herbs, and serve it with some delicious naan. Basically, a gyro without the tzatziki sauce. Matthew reads like a policies and procedures document. If someone wrongs you, go talk to them. If that doesn't work, take a few friends and talk to them again. This was the first century version of document everything. If that still doesn't work, if that doesn't bring any meaningful resolution, then bring them in front of the whole church. Good work, Matthew. That is very Presbyterian of you. With a little polishing up, it will be ready for the book of order. However, when we pull back the layers of these two stories, we actually find ourselves in the middle of moments that are very core to the Christian faith. And it leads us to this core question, what does God's justice have to do with God's love? This Exodus story is really the central act of liberation. It's the cornerstone of the Hebrew scriptures. If you ask the Hebrew people to introduce themselves when they sat down at a small group meeting, they might say, hi, my name's Israel. We're the people who God redeemed from slavery in Egypt. You could ask, well, who is God? And they would say, um, it's the God who brought us out of slavery in Egypt, and then rolls their eyes at the friend next to them. And today's scripture text falls at the penultimate moment of this confrontation between God and Pharaoh. At this point, we've had nine of the 10 plagues. And each time, Moses goes way down in Egypt's land to tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Nine times, nine times Moses goes to Pharaoh and asks him to let the people go so that they can worship their God. And Pharaoh is getting so frustrated at this point that he's starting to propose compromises. Okay, okay, Um, you're super old and you're super young can go, but all of the working age people, they've got to stay. He's like, okay, okay, everybody can go, but you can't take any of your animals with you. We're going to keep them. Finally, 
Pharaoh says, in frustration, go. Get out of here. Take all the Hebrew people with you and leave. But God warns Moses that Pharaoh will change his mind. And so today's recipe for liberation is where Moses and Aaron tell the people to get ready to go. When I was working at a home for teenage girls, it was a, an intense place, and you knew a fight was about to happen when somebody took off their earrings. <laughs> that is what is happening here. This is the get ready, it's about to go down. Pharaoh's given the Israelites per, um, permission to leave Egypt, but Moses knows he's gonna change his mind. So these instructions are very specific. The, um, he says, first, gird your loins. I found a great comic illustration of what it actually means to gird your loins. I'll be happy to show you after worship. But basically, everybody wore long tunics at the time. And so girding your loins was a way to kind of um, pull your skirts up and tie them about so that you could run or do battle or were ready for heavy work. Kind of like when I come up the stairs here and I pull up my robe so I don't trip on it in front of everybody. This is what Moses says. He says, gird your loins, get ready. It's about time. He also says, put your shoes on and get your staff ready. Now, have any of you ever helped small children get out of a house? How many times do you have to tell them to put their shoes on? More than once, right? At least in my house. So this is Moses, he's like, Get your, you know, get ready to go, get your outfit ready, get your shoes on, get your walking staff. And then he describes this meal they're supposed to have. And what's really interesting is this is a meal that when you prepare it, it requires no cleanup. And it allows for no leftovers. It's a nice, protein-rich meal for walking across a sea running from an Egyptian army. It is about to go down. And God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So basically he's saying, get ready to flee, because you will need to be on the move as soon as the Egyptians realize that their children are dying. Now, working with the kids here at New Prov has really shifted my perspective on how I read scripture. They are all terrifyingly good at asking questions. Yes. Um, and reading this story with adults, especially when it gets to this part about God causing a plague that kills the firstborn in Hebrew families, hits heavy. But reading it with kids, it just makes it even harder to wrap my head around. I have read lots of commentaries about the Exodus that try to reframe and explain this bloody scene, but nothing lands quite right. Yes, Yahweh's actions against the firstborn of Egypt echoes Pharaoh's command to the midwives that Emily spoke about a few weeks ago, when the Pharaoh told the midwives to kill the newborn boys of the Hebrews because he was worried about their growing power. But it still doesn't sit right to me that the God of justice would somehow bring forth into an eye-for-an-eye response to the Egyptians. You killed our sons, so now I will do the same to you. 
a couple years ago during our confirmation worship service, I'm pretty sure it was Jack Knatzer who explained his statement of faith and said, yeah, but I'm not really sure about this whole theology of atonement. And I thought to myself, same, Jack, same. Because most attempts at explaining exactly how redemption happens fall short in how they explain God's justice. Anselm and Calvin, kind of the biggies in the game, lean on this idea that human sin offends God's justice. And so Jesus takes on the necessary punishment or debt in order for humans to be reconciled to God. But my problem with that is that it frames God's justice as something abstract or distant, that it's somehow not connected to us, that it's a separate piece of God, but I I just don't think that's right. I think God's love and God's sense of justice are tied together, and they're deeply bound in the relational nature of our communal life and our life with God. God's justice is a concern for humanity, for the creation that we live in. God's justice is a concern for the vulnerable and a desire for us all to learn and grow. When I was working at Presbyterian College, I remember um, the office I was in worked with student conduct, and that's just the kind of higher ed way of saying what happens when people get in trouble. And one of the first things I learned is that the conduct process is supposed to be educational. It's not there just to punish people who have done wrong or deter others from doing it, but it's a part of the learning. It's part of the co-curriculum of education, is how do you understand when you've done something wrong and what do you do to try to make it right? And we see some of that in this text from Exodus as well, because the text becomes kind of meta as we read it. It starts with Moses and Aaron giving instructions to the Israelites, but then it expands. Um, Hebrew scholars, not me, can tell you how the verbs change. And it goes from being something that Moses and Aaron said to the people way back then to something they're saying to all of us. This is how you remember the Passover when God saved the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And it shows us how to commemorate this so that we can learn and become part of the process. It's a time that calls um, Jewish folks and Christians to remember that we too came out of a time of slavery. And that memory is to shape our communal life. It is a ritual of readiness a sense of urgency and a reminder of our vulnerability, all tied in to this recipe for liberation. So while I still struggle with exactly how um, reconciliation happens with Jesus and what it means that this plague kills the Pharaoh's children, I look at other things in the story and I see that God gives Pharaoh 10 different chances for restitution. God basically gives Pharaoh 10 opportunities to change his mind, to see how he has wronged the Hebrew people, to let them go without conflict, and to begin the process of healing. And each of those times, Pharaoh says no. And that brings me to the New Testament text, 
the one that kind of reads like an HR document. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Now, when I'm talking to people who are in conflict with friends or family members, a lot of times I'll say, did you tell that person that you're upset with them? Did you tell them why you're upset with them? Did you use all your words to actually explain what went wrong and how it impacted you? Because a lot of the times we expect one another to have ESP and to know and understand what people are feeling without ever telling them. And I think it's because those kinds of conversations are really hard. They're not a lot of fun when you have to go to somebody you respect and care about and say, you did this and this was kind of not okay. This hurt me or this bothered me. Those conversations are about the least amount of fun you can have. And I myself have been on that, have been in those. I've had those conversations with people I've respected and I've had people I respect come to me and say, Rachel, you messed it up. You got this wrong. And it hurts and it's not fun, but it is an invitation. It's an invitation to connection and it's an invitation to learning and growth. A few weeks ago, I was talking to Presbytery um, and I was introducing our new candidate for the general presbyter position. Somebody got up and asked a question about leadership. Do I think there's any dysfunctional leadership in the church? And I said, well, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will be dysfunction among them. Human beings are broken. We, even when we're trying our best, we get things wrong. But the invitation is that we can listen and learn. That even as we come together imperfectly, that God is there working through us. And this verse about where two or three are gathered in my name, we usually hear that in the context of worship or in communion, but I think it's even more powerful that it shows up here in the midst of how we handle conflict. Where two or three are gathered in God's name, even in having the hard conversations, even if you have to bring someone in front of the church and say, this is happening and this is not okay and we have to deal with it, even in those moments, God is with us. So I don't have the exact right equation. I can't explain the theology to you exactly of how God's justice and God's mercy works and how Jesus' life and death saved humanity, but I know and I see that God's justice is deeply tied in his love for us, for all of humanity, that those two things are bound together and that they're not distant and separate, but they're connected to humanity. They are connected to us deeply. And so when we are invited to listen, when we are invited to learn how something we have done may have hurt one another, that God is with us in that space. God is calling us to become more fully who we can be because we trust that God's grace and justice are tied together and they're enough for all of us. Amen.